the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Air Marshal retired Jeff Brown, AO, who joined the RAAF in February of 1980 after completing an engineering degree. He graduated from number 111 pilot's course in 1981 and has since had many and varied flying roles. He's operated Chinooks, been a flying instructor, been a member of the Roulette's aerobatic display team, operated Hornets in the roles of squadron pilot, flight commander, executive officer and commanding officer, three squadron. He then completed F-111 conversion and assumed the position of officer commanding number 82 wing in December 2000. In 2003, he commanded all F-A-18 and C-130 operations in Operation Iraqi Freedom and was appointed a member of the Order of Australia and a Legion of Merit for his services in the operation. He commanded Air Combat Group throughout 2006 and then from January 2007 until June 2008 he was Director General Capability Planning in Air Force Headquarters. He was the Deputy Chief of Air Force from 30th of June 2008 to the 3rd of July 2011. Air Marshal Brown was appointed Chief of Air Force on the 4th of July 2011 and served in that role until July 2015. He was appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia during his term as Chief of the Air Force. His main sporting passion is sailplane racing. Well, Jeff, welcome and thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Look, let's start... With your role, you are retired, the Air Marshal, Chief of Air Force. What do you think is the most important role in that role? I uh, used to look at it through a pretty simple lens most of the time. I, I used to say that I had to make sure that the capability was fit for purpose across time. So you had to be fit for purpose for the government of the day yep. in the current situation which you know goes to how serviceable the aeroplanes are on your whole logistics footprint mm. but it also had to be uh, fit for purpose in the future so your job was to make sure that the capability development process was delivering that future air force mm. so i suppose when i looked at anything i was doing i kind of looked through both of those lenses as, as to whether i was kind of enhancing our ability to produce air power today or air power in the future. So you have to have a future in mind as well. You can't just look at the present. I I think the future is critical because you need to set the Air Force up for success in the future. So certainly you've got what you've got, which you're building on previous Chiefs of Air Force have delivered over 20 or 30 years. But you've also got to look for the next 30 years about... Uh, what sort of capabilities the Air Force so needs to be So to what be extent relevant. then is your predecessors an influence in how you approach things and what you do? Is, there, is, is it like the law, there is a precedent for that and we follow that or you set your own agenda? Well, I, I think luckily for Air Force, I, I think we had a common view 
of what Australia needed in mm. terms of air power and the, and the joint force and Air Force's role in the joint force. So I don't think uh, there was a radical change in direction, but if you want to achieve the sort of capability development outcomes that you kind of see in service today, uh, you have to have a consistent uh, message and a persistence to actually get to those outcomes. Sure, sure. From an outsider looking in, if I'm a cadet and the wing commander comes in, that's my boss. But in the role of Chief of Air Force, again, an outsider looking in, it would seem to me that there could potentially be a tension in your role because I see it as you're responsible to the Minister for Defence. You've got to report to him or her. You're responsible to the bureaucracy. Uh, You've got to work with them. But then... You're also responsible to the aviator, the men and women in blue. Does that create a tension of any kind or could that create a tension of some kind? To be honest with you, I never really saw a a tension in that. You you know, your colleagues within defence, as long as you clearly articulated where you wanted to go, why you needed to go in those directions, you could usually line them up. Um, Certainly the men and women of the Air Force, if I go back to the present, you know, uh, their ability to produce air power, you know, when you're in a leadership role, your output is down there right at the front. Sure. So you need to be, make sure that you've kind of cleared as many blockages as you can yeah. to make sure that they can actually produce the goods that you think they should produce. When you had the role, did you think to yourself, not discussing with anyone else, but did you think to yourself, now what should my role be? Did you consider your position and what your position meant and should be doing? I think I always had a pretty clear view of what I saw as the role, was was to make sure that the Air Force of today was as capable as it could be, mm. but also with an eye to the future, is to make sure that it could be as capable as could be in the future with an eye to the sort of threats that it was going to face. What were the roadblocks in your perception of what should be what roadblocks may have been or could have been put in front of you? I think there's always a prioritisation. So I I sort of used to look back at history a little bit for the sort of prioritisation that you needed Mm -hmm. to do. And one of my examples I used to talk to the senior leadership team was probably about, you know, where the Air Force found itself in World War II, where it was probably lucky that the United States Army Air Force did not have pilots to man all the aeroplanes that they had. So in my view, it was important that we put the structure in place in terms of equipment. Whether we could fully man that at this stage and whether we had the right sort of combat support uh, for that projection, uh, to me, was one of those things that you could actually start to really fill in Mm. from a mobilisation point of view. So there was always a... You know, I think the combat support groups, were, which are incredibly important in the terms of projection of air power, but in a peacetime role, uh, some parts of the organisation you've got to say, well, I can actually mobilise that from the civilian mm. community to that do it. So that, so that was sort of, you know, my view was that you put the framework in place uh, because it's just not easy. You can't go and get 100 JSFs in six months you know it takes a long time to build all those capability bricks so you, where you're prioritized 
had to be in a lot of that long-term stuff with a view of, well, can I pull pilots back from other places in times yeah. of conflict? Can I use a lot of civilian capability to sort of sure. uh, do a lot of that base support? So um, I, I suppose you had to prioritise towards what I term the long lead items in the capability. So it was a good formula having more pilots and you got planes? Uh, that would always be a good formula. You know, um, I still don't think, uh, you know, one of one of the things that I would have liked to have done, and it's nice to see that they've finally started to increase the ADF by 18,000 people. That was never uh, something that we could approach in my time. Uh, so I think if you look at the structure of the Air Force that we've got at the moment, you could almost double or triple its capability by increasing the number of crews that we've actually got. So we're, we're probably crew limited at, at the moment. Mm. And that obviously is a very important component and it's not just the pilot, but the crew that makes the plane work yeah. and the pilot efficient. Yeah, for sure. So, so I always felt people limited, but I felt that that was a reasonable risk to take. Um, but is that always going to be a problem for a country the size of Australia, 25 million people uh, with three, three forces to fill? Yeah, no, well, I don't think so. I think if you look at the examples in World War II and the sort of mobilisation, you, you, can, you can actually get those people. You can't always get them in peacetime. Yeah, yeah well, that's the nature of yeah. peacetime. Just a, an academic question for the person who's listening to you now who may not be in the Air Force. Uh, we can talk about an Air Commodore and an Air Vice Marshal, but I've had a number of people I've spoken to talk about the stars, one star, two star, three star, four star, etc. four star being the top. Can you... For that person who's listening to you as not an official Air Force expert, differentiate those, what those stars mean, what, why are they different, why are they four? Is that possible? Yeah, well, I, I suppose, uh, you know, the way I tend to do it would be to talk in terms of Air Force's group structures. So we're kind of, we've got uh, groups in Air Force, like Air Combat Group, which has got most of the strike yep. fighter aeroplanes, Air Mobility Group that's got all the... Um, Transport assets, yep. surveillance reconnaissance group, which has got all the all the ISR assets, um, you know, in, in lots of ways. If you look at what Air Force does, you know, we move things through the air, we sort of see what's there, and we affect things on the ground and, and see from the air, and they're kind of the core core things that we do, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it's been great to see Mel move us into the space area too as well. So, so each one of those groups is actually headed by a, a one-star. So that can be two or 3,000 people a lot of the time. And they're the, they're the core outputs. And what's the effort. rank of that one-star? That, well, that's, that's an Air Commodore. Air Commodore, right. Basically. So, so can you be an Air, Con Air Commodore without having a one-star? Or is a one-star mean Air Commodore? One-star means Air Commodore. Okay. Now, just for this person who doesn't know what... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a two-star means Air Vice Marshal. Okay. And then three-star is Air Marshal. Yes. And, and then four-star, four as far as you can go. Is Air Chief Marshal. Correct. And that can be... That role, that rank, can be Army, Air Force or Navy. Is that correct? Well, yeah, except they're called different... Different names. Different. different but different they still have... It's still four, four stars. stars. Yeah. Okay. Enough of that. Let's talk about you. Yeah, for sure. Did you have an engineering degree before or after you joined the Air Force? Uh, before. Why did then did you join the Air Force with an engineering degree and a potential to make heaps of money? 
Uh, look, I suppose I always wanted to join the, the Air Force. I, Why? Well, in, in my last... Uh, I was actually in the Air Training Corps, as it was called, called then. At school? You know, the Air Force Cadets, yeah. And, uh, you know, I always had this passion to go flying and I got a gliding scholarship out of uh, cadets, you know, um, and got to solo. And, and I suppose I was surrounded by a, a lot of ex-World War II veterans in the gliding movement um, who kind of had an influence, I think, in, on the way I flew. So um, I actually applied for the academy in the, the 12 months coming coming up. But as you go through, I went through the medical and I had trouble touching my toes and then they... <laughs> I'm off to find an X-ray, and you know I had a fused vertebrae. So I thought, oh, I need to do something else. So I didn't. I did an engineering. I started an engineering degree because I I didn't get into the academy as it was then. But at the fourth year point, I was doing so much. You know, I had every Friday off in the way that universities program their things. Yeah, so, yeah. You, know, so you spend more time. I, I was doing a lot of flying. I thought. <laughs> I wonder if I can give this thing another go. So I did a lot of practice and I could actually, the way they picked it up last time was was I couldn't touch my toes, basically. So for the next one, I made sure I could touch my toes. And of course, they'd lost the previous record, so that there you go. That made sense, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I got also a little lucky there too as well because luckily it was about, Ten past five when I went to the ophthalmologist, oh. and he—I was slightly myopic in my right eye at the at the time. I think through study or whatever, and uh, he's going, "Oh, I'm not sure whether you you sort of qualify." And uh, <laughs> what I did then was a rather pleading uh, thing to this guy, and he couldn't ring up anybody to check, so he he ticked me off, and he said, "You'll need glasses at some point down the track." So glasses is a no-no as a pilot, is that Well, it's a no-no to get in. Uh, once you're in, of course, they've started to make such an investment in you, you can have you glasses. You can have glasses, right. So you, you actually get in and graduate in 1981, the year after you got the engineering degree. Yeah, that's okay. correct. Okay. Uh, and that was what, number 111 pilots course? That's correct, yeah. So what was that like? Tell us about that. Yeah, look, it, it was a fascinating experience. I remember at the um, recruiting board, they asked me, "Am I going to have a, you know, am I going to have any trouble with flying?" And at that stage, you know, I had a thousand hours on gliders, and I said, "Well, that's, I don't see that as being an issue. I can right. fly aeroplanes." And a couple of the board members who were who were operational guys, I could just see a smirk on their face when I said that. And so, yeah, there was a certain transition. The Air Force likes you to fly in a certain certain way. And you know, being a being a glider pilot, holding an exact altitude and airspeed were never uh, measures of effectiveness, as far as I was concerned. I, I remember one stage early on the training in the CT4, I got accused of never looking inside the cockpit to actually see what those dials said. You always had your eye. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I was just you know, uh, you know, glider pilots figures all outside the cockpit, and what this if you got the right sort of attitude. The, the aeroplane's going to go where you go. So actually reading the instruments was kind of a very secondary thing for me. So it actually took quite a quite a change in my attitude to sort of, uh, you know, do it the Air Force way. Yeah, well, I, a couple of other people have said the same thing. Sometimes the Air Force way, they don't like the fact that you've had 
a lot of training in civil aircraft because it's a different process. Yeah, and you built up your own set of bad habits as they characterise it. I've always thought looking outside the cockpit's not a bad habit to have, but, uh, you know, I really had to... I had to work on the... Uh, Attitude, lookout, performance. Jeff, in an F-35, I think looking outside instead of looking at the (laughs) dials may have been a little bit of an impediment. Uh, So what planes did you actually... What was the pilot course? What It was uh, was CT-4s, and to be honest, I didn't like the CT-4 all that much, coming from, you know, having flown most of my time in sail planes, which Mm. were relatively quiet, smooth aircraft. Um... So I, I suspect I, I, I struggle somewhat at, on CT4s just because, you know, the noise, the propeller, the whole thing. The smell. The smell. You know, I'd being tall, I'd turn upside down no matter how hard I tightened up the harness. My head would be against the canopy in a, in a CT4. However, I got to, I got to um, Pierce and I flew Mackies and the Mackie just reminded me of, you know, high-speed high glider in lots of ways. And I... I felt much more at home in that aeroplane than I ever did in the CT4. How then did you end up in helicopters? Well, I just wasn't didn't place well enough on the pilot's course is the, is the so issue. So it was their decision? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, did, I did kind of whinge and complain. But to be honest with you, it was actually the best possible posting for me. The Air Force sometimes knows better than the individual. Mm. And, yeah. and they, they actually... It, it was... Uh, you know, helicopters was just such a great experience. You know, I enjoyed my three well, years there. Tell us about your first flight. In a helicopter? In a helicopter. Yeah, well, that, that was actually quite um, disturbing because, uh, you know, I remember trying to hover. They used to take us to Wagga. And, you know, I am all over the airfield trying to... And I'm thinking, I can fly aeroplanes, but I'm not actually sure I can do this. You know, it was my first thought process again with a bit of practice you sort of start to get it under control but mm. a helicopter is such a your movements are so minute and and you need to be really well you're using your feet as well yeah right? you're using your feet it's it's quite uh it's quite a challenge to go from a fixed wing to a to a helicopter first first off once you've got it under control it's 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 great but i, I think that the aspects for me which for helicopters was actually the leadership aspects you know very early on i had you know one or two helicopters you know had a captaincy within a year i'd be able to take two chinooks away to townsville with 30 odd troops and you had to manage that whole whole thing and to my mind uh that was a wonderful so what you were learning as a leader yeah yeah, definitely you know you, you got an old vietnam veteran um flight engineer and loadmaster you know they they take some some management skills to to actually get yourself Mm. working as a team because they 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 won't catch any slack yeah an unfair question probably but which is the more fun to fly a helicopter or a jet i look they're fun for different reasons uh you know i i used to thoroughly enjoy low-level in a helicopter, it's much more intimate with the ground. The ground, yeah. Uh, you know, jets are fun because of the challenges in terms of operating, operating mm. them, mm. and the speed. So long that you as do. you're looking at the dials. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Borneo and the Knights accident. Can you recall that? I, I can because uh, I, it truncated 
the initial thing after pilot's course was was um, you did the Bravo course. I was I went direct to Chinooks and you were supposed to do hundred about 100, 120 hours, I think, on, on Bravos as a kind of introductory helicopter. So Bravo was a type of helicopter? Yeah, it was, a, was the original one that they had in Vietnam, which right. was a you know, smaller version of a Huey. Um, but we probably only did 50 hours on the, on the, when the accident, it was an unfortunate accident. And, um, you know, Air Force 12 Squadron at the time were kind of desperate for for new blood so they said well don't worry about the rest of the course um just come track direct to 12 squadron and we'll take the risk uh so there were two of us brad wolf and myself uh i think we spent you know with a co-pilot's conversion so it was mm. only three weeks and then at the end of the three weeks they actually did the, the pilots for k81 so mm. we ended up uh as uh Having done this nice little conversion for three weeks, we ended up as co-pilots on Kangaroo 81, which was a real, you know, three weeks after you could finish conversion, it was an incredible eye-opener on how the boys used to fly the helicopter because all these nice pads that you used to go into in training, all of a sudden, you know, we're coming into pads that are, are pretty marginal in that the trees are getting blown over yeah, and you stay yeah. up at flight idle and they're not they're not very big and you're crawling up the side of mountains in, in fog to pick up army guys and yeah so I couldn't have had, it's like being in the trial on the deep end you couldn't have had a better introduction in lots of ways okay um, in 12 squadron and again with Chinooks uh, I don't know whether it's the same thing the same accident but there were, you experienced uh, an engine failure in PNG <laughs> can you expand on that for us yeah it was um as Chinook, the C model wasn't ever the most reliable aeroplane around. So every time you went outside the training, you used to take a change of clothes just in <laughs> case you... Uh, you know, they were a big, complicated he helicopter. And this day we were up in PNG, and, the, you know, as Air Force sometimes does, it was kind of on a cost-cutting exercise. And we normally used to take two aircraft up. Uh, the second aircraft, a lot of the time, was to support the other one should there be a problem. <laughs> so anyway, we are up in PNG by ourselves... Um, looking for Boston bombers that had crashed during World War II. Oh. So I think we had probably 15 or 20 packs uh, this day and we're going to a small village probably 50 or 60 miles outside uh, Madang where they'd identified where some Boston parts could mm. be. And so I had a rule by that stage, you know, I, I had probably seven or 800 hours in the helicopter. I never shut the helicopter down any place I wasn't prepared to stay. So I popped them out to do the recce and I just stayed in flight idle. But this day the old girl still got me and then I think the number two bearing or number three bearing just failed in flight idle. So there we were, one engine down, stuck in New Guinea, only helicopter in country. So what happened? How did well, you get out? Yeah, if... It's always better to be lucky than good. So the, one of the problems with the Chinook was that all the majority of the antennas were on the bottom of the aeroplane. So the transmission, once you're on the ground, was not great. Right. Um, but, you know, I've always considered myself a bit lucky. In this day we were... Uh, Jack Plenty, who was on, ex you know, was on secondment to the PNGDF, 
just at that time, where we're probably 10 minutes after we had the problem, happens to be flying over in a <sighs> luck Dakota, you know. So uh, we, we, the natives were great, you know, they had long houses ready for us to stay, but we had 30, 30 odd people. So he managed to organise some helicopters out of Garoka to come. <laughs> More Chinooks? Uh, no, no, more, no, uh, just some civilian helicopters that actually, uh, and then we organised a, a bus out of Madang and we ferried everybody uh, to a point where we could sort of bus, bus them home. And of course, then we had to fly up a, 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 a C-130 with a, with a Huey on board so that we could actually get a new engine out to where it was stuck. So you got a new engine for the Chinook and eventually you're, the Chinook's not still there. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Eventually we got it, we got it going again. But uh, it was kind of, it was a far more expensive exercise than it would have been had we just flown mm. two Chinooks up there, which was our normal sort of operation. So how do you end up back in planes, the move back to planes? Is that what happened? Uh, you, you're posting with the Chinook or the, the squad? Yeah, there. look, if... if um, you know, my next posting was was actually to instructors course. So I did three years on Chinooks. On Chinooks. Yeah, and then went down to East Sale and then across to Pierce. So this were, we're talking kind of mid-80s by now, mm-hmm. 85. Um, the airlines were on a fairly big hiring spree. So you, the, uh, there was only a six-year return of service. So the loss rate out of the Air Force was quite high. Oh. Uh, so I did uh, probably – I was always hopeful of going to jets and then going to fighters after that, which was my That my was plan. your plan. That was the plan. Uh, and, and I, I – at 2FTS, I had good support to actually execute that. Uh, the problem was that we had they had such a loss rate out of Central Flying School that I went from Pierce across to Central Flying School for a tour, which which was a fantastic tour as well. But it did kind of take me out of the age bracket then to go and fly fighters, I thought, at the time. So was at that stage, was there an age? Oh, well, I, I think, you know, in terms of the way the fighter community viewed it, if you're going to transition, you really needed to transition after that first okay. two tours. So I was kind of up at the three-tour mark. Um, but by that stage, the helicopter decision had been, been made. So there was no transition back to helicopters in many respects because they were off to the Army. So at what point then did you become, and why did you become, part of the roulettes? Because that's pretty high. That's an elite pilot. Yeah, yeah. Look, it was it was an opportunity that came up. I used to when you're instructing, you watch them practice every day, and you look at it and think, oh, well, you know, if I get the chance, I'd like to sort of try out for that. So, um, which is which is what but I you did. became part of the roulette. Yeah, yeah. Now, tell us about that. What was that like? I mean, I've always when I've seen the roulettes perform, I think, wow, they're the elite of the elite. Well, but it's like anything. Yeah, you know, it looks. And the first time you do it, but there's a kind of slow work up. You you up at height and you start to do formation arrows. And once you've got that under control, you put more aeroplanes in that at a certain certain height. And after a number of missions, when everybody's happy, you move it down lower and you keep moving it down lower until you get back down to 
display height. So there's an awful lot of training. Uh, people don't often understand the rule is very much a part-time. Your main role is instructing and checking inside the inside the Air Force. So a lot of the roulette missions are done first thing in the morning before you really start the, start the day. And the shows are done at the weekend. So you don't actually have a lot of so spare time. Are you part of the roulettes at the same time as you're part of number two flying training school, is that? No, no, no. You're part of central flying school. Central flying so, school. So, so they, the only difference is that you, you kind of move from the... There's two... There were two parts of central flying school one part that uh instructed air force pilots on right. how to be instructors the other part went round to other parts of the air force and checked their training standards did the instrument rating exam mm. and sort of thing so you tended to move out of the instructing the full-time instructing mm. role into that into that other role inside, inside. so was the rule it's really just fun for you i yes yeah, i it was it was hard work, you know. Some of the manoeuvres were were hard work, um, but I always found it. Yeah, but that's an giving that's role. teaching you another yeah, skill yeah, too, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Uh, in and you said a moment ago that you thought age wise you've gone past the possibility of a fighter pilot, but in 1990 uh, you're involved in the F18 uh, conversion course, mm-hmm. and you did the F111 conversion course. That was a, that was probably about even later, you know. So yeah, well, ten, so, ten years later. But the yeah. point is, you you are now doing you, the F eighteen. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a fighter. Yeah, that's right. So you thought you were too old, but you're in it. Yeah, and, and there's probably another story around that too as well. But uh, you know, certainly. Tell us about the other story around that. Well, well, you know, sometimes in the air force, you if you want to do something, you've got to keep making representations and. Sometimes you need a bit of support, and I've got one guy uh, who I've got to thank for getting me on fighters, which was uh, Doug Riding. He was OC of Sale at the time, went on to become uh, VCDF, um, and we'd flown together, and he was he was very supportive of me going to fighters. So that's how I actually got there. But Jeff, I mean, Chief of Air Force, you must have must have the view that the Air Force, in its wisdom gives you training in a whole range of areas so that if you have the skills to advance that when you get to a point where you're near the top you're able to because you've had that experience it's almost like cross fertilization of of skills so what the air force is doing to you yeah you may have someone who put in a word for you or whatever but that's another step for you is, is that not uh, possible yeah definitely and the, the so the you know and I had 10 years flying the, the F18 which was a wonderful aeroplane uh, the move into the F-111 was a little bit more accidental in that uh, I had been CA-3 squad and I'd done a um, board of inquiry on an F-111 accident, the unfortunate one where uh, they flew into the island of mm. Malaysia. And I suppose I'd been head of that board which had made certain recommendations. Um, however... There is an interlude. I'd actually got out of the Air Force uh, at the end of my tour at Three Squadron. In fact, you left. I left uh, mainly because I thought that I'd, you know, I'd been cell of a fighter squadron, and that was the kind of ultimate thing in my mind. And uh, I had two boys, and I wanted to make sure that they they got through 
school, school at, the, yeah. at the one one school. My father had a real estate business, uh, you know, which uh, was quite profitable. Um, so I thought that that you might become be the, a real estate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, I did that for three or four months, and uh, you know, we fixed up his rent register and changed. <laughs> Changed locations, got it all set up, and I, I remember driving to work one day, thinking, mm, "I'm not sure I could do this for the next 15 years of your life." So, you know, there was a life lesson in there. Therefore, it never really felt like work. You know, I was doing my passion mm. fundamentally, mm. and certainly, I didn't have a passion for the real estate. Um, so, I kind of rang, rang up Air Force and said, "Well, you're interested in sort of take me back." <clears throat> Well, they've invested all this money. Obviously, they said yes. <laughs> they did, but the, the next bit was even a little bit more unusual because I'd had to confess to the Chief of the Air Force about mid the, in my last six months tour of Free Squadron that mm. I was actually leaving because he he decided to post me to be OC Pierce. And I said, well, that isn't going to work. Um, so they took me back, and, and to be honest with you, I was quite ready to do whatever staff job mm. I was assigned. But um, Errol called me into the office and he said, well, you knocked back the last job that I gave you. You're not going to knock this one back. I said, sure, what is it? And he said, well, you wrote all those, you wrote that report. I want you to go up to 82 wing and be OC 82 wing. So I'd left as a wing commander. Uh, I had been provisionally promoted for the position in in Pierce, but I came back in as a group captain. You came back with a, in a better... <laughs> it pays to leave something. I said it's good to be lucky. Yeah. You know. How long were you out when you left? Uh, what, it was, it was, yeah, it was probably only four or five months. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> a great period of time. Didn't, didn't take me long to figure out that I'd made a big mistake. Mm. You must have a view, and I'll understand if you don't want to answer, but <clears throat> the F-111 doesn't have a very good record, neither in the United States or Australia. Well, I mean, we lost quite a number of them in Australia. On the report that you did for the F-111 accident, why was the F-111 such, apparently, a disaster? Well, I, I don't think it, it was. It, it had some initial teething problems, but if you actually look at it, you know, we operated it quite successfully for 37 years. Now, I think there was some... Air Force cultural reasons, which which were addressed in the nineties, around that kind of accident rate that we did did have. So I, I don't think the aeroplane was any more accident prone than any other aircraft we had. So mo most of the uh, all the accidents that we had were um, can be traced back to kind of crew error uh, mm. accidents. Okay, the aeroplane itself was was. You know, a magnificent long-range, um, you know, strategic bomber. Uh, okay. So I, I think, you know, I would never characterise it as uh, I, I would characterise as a very successful aeroplane. And and as you flew it, you tended to fall in love with the beast too, as well, because um, at at low level and for, for what it was built with, for it was a bomber. It 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 was a bomber, but it was uh, it was fast and it was a lot of fun to fly. It was challenging to fly in some some respects. Uh, 
but it was also challenging to maintain and operate. Mm, mm. And I think people don't actually give the Air Force enough credit. United Air, United States Air Force retired that aeroplane in 1997. 1997 to 2010, for 13 years, we were the sole operator of what I'd argue was one of the most complicated aeroplanes ever built. You know, it was the first after-burning turbofan. It had an ejection capsule. It had yeah, swept the whole wing. cockpit came yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, it had swept wings. So it was really on the bleeding edge of analogue technology. Mm. We went through and we did a digital update on the aeroplane. The Australians did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> so... Uh, you know, in the end, it was still it was still a very mm. capable aeroplane. So, if you had to go back now, I have a favourite car I like to drive. Which of the two, F one eleven or the F eighteen? Again, really hard. No, you got to pick one. You yeah. got to pick one, Jeff. I, I liked them both for different reasons. Uh, you know, if I had to go on a bombing mission long range, F one eleven. F one eleven. Okay. Right. If I had to be in a fight with another aeroplane. I wanted to be an F-18. Okay. I, I want you to explain the process of hyponics, the incident involving uh, Cam Conroy. What is it, what was it, and how does it happen? Yeah, hy- hy- hypoxia uh, largely. So, um, you know, as you increase in altitude, the saturation of uh, oxygen decreases. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once you're above 10,000 feet, you need to be breathing some form of supplemental oxygen, which also, um, uh, you know, that amount of oxygen increases as you increase in mm-hmm. height. Now, most Air Force aeroplanes, like civilian aeroplanes, are pressurised. So you don't have that problem in a in a, an airliner because it's actually pressurised down to about five or 6,000 feet, mm-hmm. maybe 8,000 feet. Um Fighters, fighters are the same. You fly in a pressurised cockpit, but you also have uh, supplemental oxygen as well. Uh, that particular accident was caused um, because he went to altitude uh, without the cockpit being pressurised, didn't notice that the pressurisation switch was off and had his um, oxygen mask off at the time. Because so you don't. He'd, re- he, he'd actually been down at low level, so that where there sure. was no requirement for the oxygen. So you don't realise what's happening when that yeah, occurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, hypoxia is a very insidious thing. You know, we do always do chamber runs, but it, it's very hard for you to tell uh, that you're actually suffering the effects of hypoxia. So you need to every couple of years you need to go and just recheck what those effects are. Mm. I'm kind of lucky. I get a bit of a grumbling in the stomach, you know, as I go through fifteen thousand feet of, and and then, you know, tingling in the fingers give me some indication that, that it is. But so you've got to be astute enough to yeah, know. Well, you've 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 got to really know what those things are. And again, that's another training training issue. So there were some, you know, some systemic failures uh, identified around that particular accident. What? were you flying and what did you did what did you do when you caused a whole pile of car alarms to go off <laughs> yeah i uh this was a i think it was a a parade it might have even been the 50th anniversary of the all the fighters fighter squadrons so it was two. a significant event it was a significant event and uh 
I was used to like to be in the fly past rather than on the parade, so I think I was leading a full ship of hornets this day. And the weather at Williamtown with the east coast sort of, it was one of those east coastly flows, so cloud was low, it was mm. drizzling. And uh, the holding point was, you know, a reasonable distance from the from the parade ground. So I found myself in the situation where we had to go a little lower than uh, probably you normally would on a fly pass because of weather. I was a little behind time. and So you in, sped up. And I had to be fast. So in this particular day, uh, we came through yeah, fairly low and certainly very fast uh, so that I could actually make the time on target. So it was a little bit of a mistake. I should have left the, the holding point a little earlier. So what was it, the, the sound of the planes that made the car alarms go off or the, yeah, the, or well, the after, aftershock or what? Yeah, I, th- I think it was uh, pretty much the kind of pressure waves from, 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 from the aeroplanes. All the old fighter pilots really enjoyed that fly past. <laughs> you've had some interesting people and I'm just wondering why the RAAF is involved. You've, had, you've flown... Wayne Gardner, the motorcyclist. I didn't fly Wayne, but uh, you didn't. No, I think it was um, one of the other guys. It might have been Ryan A. Hume. But, that, but how, how do they get into the? Well, at the at the time we were doing uh, a, a show for the Grand Adelaide Grand Prix, I think, okay. and you know Wayne was. So you had to. He had to get there. So the IWF took him. There. No, 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 no. We, we we just took him up as a as a sort of experience. It's it's more. Yeah, a public relations, public relations. for, what for about the Air Force. Greg Norman. Yeah, Greg, I took for a ride uh, back in the eighties at some some point in time, and again, it was all around kind of. Uh, you know, in lots of ways, the roulettes is is a sort of uh, a small window into the ADF. Not, and you know, it's all about the precision that you do things with, the sure. capability. Uh, it's it's not only a symbol of the Air Force, but I think it's it's a, a symbol of all three services in many respects mm. because it's really hard for the public to understand the complexity of what a lot of what the ADF does. Mm. But in, with a team like the Rulets, you've got a visual sort of um, story of of how I, it does business. I I would suspect that the general public would have a a greater admiration of the Air Force than maybe the Army or the Navy, simply because the Air Force is there and it's more spectacular in, in its vision, a flyover, a flypast or whatever, a, pl- a jet, a sound. You see the Army marching, you don't see them at work fighting, you don't see the Navy because they're at sea. Yeah. So the Air Force has a greater PR presence. It does, but, I, you know, we... we, we now talk, I think, more in terms of a a, a joint force. So, yeah, of course. you know, I I think, you know, even though we've got the more spectacular um, display, there's there's very similar kind of aspects to both army and navy, and the same sort of high level of training, high level of degree of difficulty exists yeah. know, in, the, in in the ops room of a <coughs> ANZAC frigate. Jeff, Army, Navy, and Air Force. The main role is war, wartime. That's that's its first first brief. So let's talk about that for a moment. Um, you, the RAAF, and you in a war zone. I'm talking about Operation Iraqi Freedom. Mm-hmm. What do you recall? 
Yeah, I, I suppose um, I recall I, I was involved in the planning for it, which I think was from kind of September right through to... 2003. Christmas. Yeah, yeah. So the planning uh, went went ahead uh, at Tampa yep. in Florida and Shore Air Force Base in South Carolina. So we were very intimately involved in the plans. I suppose we had a rough idea what the government wanted to deploy. Um, the Air Force had not deployed um, fighters or bomber aeroplanes since Vietnam. You know, um, mm. we'd fundamentally put air air refuelers in sure. 91 in the Gulf War. Uh, so, you know, it was careful. We were careful to plan how we would fit in that rather large air campaign. Mm. Ha- having said that, it was, uh, uh, to me, it was a really great lesson to all of us who, who deployed when we saw you know, United States Air Force, Marines, US Navy, air power in action and all the contributing elements to that mm. in a full-time operation. I think it shaped a lot of our views on what what the deficiencies were in the Air Force to be able to sort of carry out those sort of operations. So, so did that help you then when you had the role of Chief of Air Force? Yeah, de- definitely. Well, I think it, it helped the entire Air Force to line up on the sort of objectives that we wanted. You know, we needed a very capable AEW and C aeroplane. We certainly needed capable fighters. You know, just just the defensive counter air posture mm. over Iraq, which was three <clears throat> continuous caps, was about 132 aeroplanes was mm. consumed in just that role before you put, uh, I think we're probably doing about a thousand strikes in a day mm. as well. So, you know, it, it was it was numbers are important. All the supporting elements from space are important. Uh, certainly the ISR elements are important. EW, which was always... You, you know, better explain EW and oh, ISR. Sorry, uh, electronic warfare, you know, the yep. ability to suppress somebody else's surface-to-air missile yep. systems. We, we always... That's a capability we always needed and with the purchase of the Super Hornet and subsequent growlers. Um, in my mind, that was a capability brick that was incredibly important for and us. And this came about as a result of us being involved in that uh, yeah, li- Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yeah, largely I think it um, probably opened our eyes a little bit as to what we really needed to make um, you know, a, a first-rate Air Force. Mm. And how were you and other Australians received... Your expertise, your knowledge, what sort Look, of partnership uh, was that like? Uh, you know, I couldn't have asked for uh, better treatment, better engagement in the whole thing. You know, right from the start, I went in there as a group captain, colonel, 06 level. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three-star at the time was uh, Lieutenant General Buzz Mosley. I was... You know, the first day I was actually up at Shore Air Force Base before we got involved in any of the planning. They they were doing Operation Northern Watch and Southern Watch. They invited us in to go and look at, you know, what they were doing in Iraq at the time. I went to go down the back with all the rest of the 06s and he kind of grabbed me by the collar and sat me right beside him uh, for that particular briefing. Uh, And at the time, I I didn't actually realise the power 
of that particular gesture. But what it meant was that it said to all the other O6s and above that I could kind of go and talk to him at any time. So, uh, you know, there's always friction in those sort of operations when you're trying to achieve the things that you mm. need to achieve for for the um, from an Australian point of view. But I think most of the time, you know, if I got stuck inside the big beast talking at that O6 level, all I'd have to say is that I think I need to go and talk to the to the uh, three star about this, and and usually the problem went away. Went away it, at that aspect. They weren't prepared. It wasn't that big a problem for them to solve for me. So, do you think that bond, that relationship between Australian Air and US Air, is rather special? It is, uh, yeah, and you know, I I think it's it's probably got a little closer in some respects. It's also very, we've got a very close relationship with the US Navy as well, which might surprise people because... What, Air, Australian Air Force and Navy? Yeah, mean? yeah. The US Navy flies F-18s, they fly P-8s, they fly Growlers, yeah. and yeah. they've been pivotal in actually helping us stand up all those sort of capabilities. So hmm. It's interesting, you know, with the um, Wedgetail, I'll give you an example. We had probably 30,000 plus hours experience on E-3s before we even took off on our first Wedgetail mission, um, courtesy of the US Air Force mm. and, the, and the RAF. So um, uh, there was even a stage, we had so many people over at Tinker Air Force Base, which is where the E3s are deployed, uh, that I think it was an entire Australian crew on one E3 at a certain time. Uh, it's, it's fantastic at the moment that we're actually paying them back as they transition to Wedgetail themselves, that they have, <laughs> they've actually got people uh, over here learning how the how the Wedgetail works. So, yeah. yeah, you know, it is a it is a it is a it is a close close bond. Jeff, tell us about the red flag mission and being bounced by the F-16s. Ah, uh, yeah. Look, uh, as as an OC, you know, you you don't get to fly as often as the flight lieutenants, nor, nor should you. But I, I did get the opportunity to do three or four uh, red flag missions, and I remember this one day... Uh, uh, sorry, what is a red flag uh, mission? Okay, a red flag mission is, is, is probably... It was originally designed after the Vietnam War so that uh, pilots got their first... The idea is if you get four or five uh, experiences in in a very complicated warfare environment, yep. you're more likely to survive. So the idea was that the red, red flag missions are always designed to be an extremely complicated uh, picture. You know, okay, you'll have service-to-air yeah. missiles, <laughs> you'll have uh, a red-air threat that keeps regenerating no yep. matter how many times it's it's shot down. So uh, we were interested in the target this day and we got into the target, we'd pickle off some... Uh, GBU-12s, I think, at the time, so we'd had a successful strike. And then coming off target, the F-11 had a had a, uh, a warning system on where you could actually tell from the sound what, what aeroplane was kind of tracking you. So normally in an F-11, you came off target, we were probably doing about 540 knots, which is, mm. which is still, still pretty quick at 200 feet. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this day I could hear this guy so um 
there was still more left in her, so I was only coming out in mill power, so it had five stages of burner, so I just took it straight through to five stages of burner and swept the wings. We were at 45, we swept it back to 72. She bounced pretty quickly to probably 700 knots at that stage, and I remember going past, and this was a debriefing, there was some uh, Italian tornadoes, and they had big jugs on, and I think they were only coming off it. 480 knots. I think I went past them doing 750, which which gave them a bit of a thrill. I think by the end of it, I probably had about 802 knots on the on the clock. Uh, there was an area where you had to be subsonic, so it took about 20 or 30 miles to slow it slow it down before that area. But suffice to say, the F-16 never caught me that day. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, now, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was under the impression. You picked up the first F-35 at Fort Worth? Uh, yes, yeah, I was uh, very privileged. We had two um, early ones I went across for the, for the ceremony, where the rollout ceremony for the first, first two. So, yeah, I think for all of us in the Air Force leadership, um, the F-35 was a, an interesting journey in that the aeroplane was always under attack by uh, so-called experts um, who probably had another vision of what was required in air power and didn't really understand what the true capabilities. The Best plane you've ever flown? Oh, I never got to fly it, but oh. uh, which was unfortunate. I certainly flew the flew the simulator, and uh, certainly I, I think the feedback we're getting, we probably got close to fifty of the aeroplanes now. Now, uh, yeah, I know Jeff that you are pressed for time, but I, I was under the impression that the last flight was on July 1st, 2015, and you found it hard to walk after? <laughs> Can you relay that to us? Yeah, look, I, I got a call from the guys at Williamtown um, probably a, a week before my end date, and they said, do you want to come up and have a last flight in a classic F-18? And, of course, I thought, yeah, I can't get any better. So uh, I, I, I was in the... You know, I could still sort of start start the thing up. Um, I had a had a fighter combat instructor in mm. my back seat, but we went up for a for a two versus two versus one thing where I had the two aeroplanes and and you know the one aeroplane was the bandit. And uh, I, you know, the G forces, you need to be kind of. Young and Match fit. fit. <laughs> yeah, go on. You know, on a 57, 58, uh, I was fit, but I certainly wasn't not match fit for pulling G these days. But I remember sort of going to the merge and looking at the airspeed and going, yeah, it's got 450 knots on it. This is going to hurt as we as we pull around the corner. So, you know, we, we kind of went head to head and uh, pulled seven and a half seven and a half G and at the time with the adrenaline flying I thought this was all I can I had a great flight the next day I could hardly walk you know move my neck or anything like that so I did I did pay for it a couple of days later but it was uh, yeah uh, I was very privileged that the the guys invited me to do that and it was a it was a it was a really great fun flight yeah and and a great great thing to do yeah look i would really love to take some more time in the future and, and explore more things that you're involved in but i've got to ask you as a final question jeff what are you most proud of that you achieved as chief of air force yeah uh, 
that's that's a hard question. There's pr- probably two answers to that. I think one of the things that uh, we changed was the way we selected commanding officers mm-hmm. inside the Air Force, and I, I'm I'm happy with the way that change was executed. And I'm probably most proud of the fact that we got aviation back into the cadets, which had died over many mm-hmm. Probably not the answers a lot of people expect, but to actually get aviation back in for, you know, 13, 14, 15 year olds and introduce them to Air Force through that, mm. I, I think is one of the achievements I'm most proud of. Jeff, I want to thank you very much for your and congratulate you on your contribution to the second oldest Air Force in the world and perhaps, given the size of our nation, the best. Um, you've had an admirable career. You've made a great contribution to the, the legacy that is the RAAF and hopefully in the future we can explore more of your career. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Globally... The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.